I, I just, I, I don't know why bragging about male genitalia has always been um, whoa, whoa, an whoa, assertion, whoa. assertion of dominance. Hold on. There's a big roach on the wall in my apartment, so I'm going to kill it real quick. I'll be kill right it. back. Go kill it. This might even make the show. We're talking about testicles and murder, which, you know, would probably definitely get more momentum because a lot of people do listen to a murder mystery podcasts or whatever the hell that cereal talks about. I don't know. I, I stopped listening because I thought they were going to talk about breakfast cereal and it was going to be hosted by Jerry Seinfeld. I was sadly mistaken. That sounds more uh, passive in the terminating way of doing things. Hey, so, sorry about that, Palmetto Bug, I, who is no, no longer with I, us. I had some very good commentary going on about it. If uh, Oh, it was epic. I, if I could figure it out any other way, the way it was um, you know, giving broadcast a detail, I, I could have sold it to... Um, you know, the Olympic committee of something amazing to listen to or whatever. It was pretty epic. Cause I mean, he did this swan dive off the top of my wall. I hit him. I blasted him with the raid and he did this pirouette swan dive towards the floor. And I have a lot of boxes from, cause I just moved and I was like, no, I hope he doesn't dive into like one of these boxes. I'll never catch him again. I mean, I knew he had the stuff on him. So I knew he was going to eventually pass away and I wasn't going to have to worry about him. But he dove between boxes. I slid a box out of the way, blasted him again. He crawled his leg, dragging behind him. I was like, I'm watching your slow demise right now, but that's what you get for trespassing in my apartment. And so now he's dead on the rug of my apartment. Um, he will def- I mean, he's definitely not moving. Hasn't moved in about two minutes. So I don't mind. It sounds gross, but he's just going to sit there. He's going to decompose for the uh for as long as our interview is and then once I, uh once our interview is over he will get a proper burial in the toilet i really like the detail and you know Not everything with it because it just capitalizes everything i just you know was giving detail for it's a first for the show because we've never actually recorded murder on the show i think that's pretty much how bubble the love sponge got canceled in the first place I think it is. I really do think it is. And if he moves, the raid is like a foot away from him. So I'll just give him another quick dose if he does decide to regenerate. Um, I don't know if uh, Palmetto Bug Zombies is a thing. Listen here. If if but. regenerated you know, insects is uh, a problem in a post-COVID world, somewhat post-COVID world, I think we have bigger problems now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is worse than the um, the murder bees in Oregon. Yeah, the murder bees. Uh, you know, we we just have to get like a new vaccine for everything. Speaking <laughs> speaking of, by the way, um, have have you heard this uh, this absolute crazy rap by Cole Beasley uh, on his uh, stance about being? anti-vaccinations after the NFL has ruled that all of their players must be vaccinated before the start of the season. I want to say I saw his name trending, but I did not click why. So no, I'm, I'm not aware of this, um, but I'm definitely interested now. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm uh, 
able to play it because you know there's certain copyright laws when it comes to music and all right. that jazz. And for athletes, I know it's pretty protected because God, I mean, you you know well enough in the hip hop game of you know even some of like probably Shaq stuff or you know maybe uh, Tony Parker having his own album or whatever. But uh, right. Cole Beasley would definitely be a new first uh, for hip hop. Um, the, the funny part is, is the way how like he asserts his like, you know, whole style behind it. I've heard this kind of rap before. Um, it is like considered, uh, like Southern rap where it'd be like, you okay. know, country oriented or whatever, the way how he's like making his stance on it, if that's painting a picture, but, um, he's oh still keeping the whole aggressive nature on why he, says he doesn't care and you know he has nuts of steel that you ah, know okay. are pretty much his tough demeanor against it <laughs> i mean mine are only animantium so i mean I, I you know and i got the vaccine so i mean if i my mine are animantium and his are steel you know you might as well you know take your chances on what chemical you're made of it i really like the nerd um you know, Easter egg you threw in there. It's actually, it's, it's pretty dope. <laughs> and it's very on brand for the show as well, which I uh, definitely give you major kudos for. Appreciate that. Yeah. Appreciate that. Um, I, I, I have never heard anything this ridiculous about a rapper being no. against medicine since uh, trick daddy said he won't take his medication for his lupus that he has. Wow. Yeah, which is, you know, interesting. Uh, and then, um, you know, uh, was it Prodigy of Mob Deep had sickle cell, didn't he? He was a, uh, I think it was Prodigy was the one yeah, who had sickle cell. Because uh, Tupac called him out on it. That's when, um, you know, that is something that he definitely succumbed to in his recent yeah. passing, which is very so, so you would think that he would, he was pretty pro-medicine, I would assume. Oh, God, yeah. Would have passed away a lot sooner. Um, well, I, I, Easy E was pro medicine for a little while. Here's I'm sure. here's a curveball for you, sir. Um, what do you think of? Uh, I see what you did there. Yes. Ha, have, what do you think of Juvenile uh, throwing back his uh, one hit just to promote people to get vaccinated? What, wow, what did really? you think about that? Did you see I, it? I got it. No, I gotta see this one oh, too. Oh man, is he really telling people to back it up so they could get the shot? No, it was I mean, it was um, vax it up or something like that. I don't know. Oh, that sounds horrible. I mean, it there's there's people selling the bag out just like to really stress the whole fact of you know wow. that we don't go back to where we were a year ago. You know. Well, you know we're. Uh... Yeah, well, we have a, a strong group of uh, Americans who just don't want to be part of the uh, solution, to put it nicely, and uh, they're screwing it up for the rest of us. Hey, Delta variant's running wild, brother. So it is. So <laughs> real quick, real quick, funny story. Yeah. So last night, I uh, so I'm on the dating scene. I'm trying to you know, I'm trying to find a significant other and all that fun stuff. Very nice. And uh, so there's a lot of adventures, a lot of stories. I'm sure I'll have some blog posts mm-hmm. and stuff like that eventually. Mm-hmm. Maybe even do my own dating podcast at some point. Oh, that'd so, be funny. Uh, that, so, so, so last night, this would be a story that definitely put on it. Last night, I went on a date with a veterinarian. Oh, cool. She, she has her own clinic in uh, Clearwater. And uh, so really nice girl. It, w- it went pretty well. Uh, we'll see what happens. But uh, so she's like, are you vaccinated? And my, my response was, are, did you mean to ask me if I've had my shots? 
And, uh, and so I started listing, I was like, yeah, I've had rabies and, uh, uh, and ticks and all my other shots. That's also very clever of her being a veterinarian. And she was like, I did not expect that answer, but that was funny. That's good. Yeah. That's really good. So I was like, I'm sure you ask that of your clients on a regular basis. She's like, actually I do. (laughs) That's, uh, that's, that's pretty neat. That's that's actually very funny. That's that's slick too. That is very okay. slick. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Estabro TV podcast. My name is Maddie. Unfortunately, my right hand man TV is um, indisposed this week. The man um, needed to take a vacation, especially away from me. Um, and I hope he doesn't leave me on the stand alone too long. Um, but that's okay. The man said the show must go on, and um, I couldn't think of anyone better um, right now than uh, a good friend of mine who started as a regular when I was first slinging drinks at a bar, and just you know ended up turn out being like just as much as a uh, Renaissance man, um, where I've had great conversation with as well, and it is uh, Mr. Michael Lortz. Um, say hello to the people, my friend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you having me, man. Yeah, yeah. It's about time. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> I, for the amount of people who I have that said they would be more than honored, as I am honored that you're here as well, um, I, I'm always trying to figure out when exactly I could fit them into the schedule. I'm trying to at least uh, get maybe two guests a month. Uh, it's really going to depend on how, um, you know, the show goes from, you know, here on out. Um, Mr. Lortz is a veteran of serving the military in this country. He is a huge sports fan, especially in baseball. And, you know, he's the primary reason why he's here, not just because he's going to talk about it with me, ladies and gentlemen, but there's a certain special surprise that we're going to talk about very late, uh, later in the show, um, a great music fan, uh, probably bigger than I am, especially on what he has ingrained in hip hop roots and any connection to what started in music in Tampa writer and author of the book curveball at the crossroads. Thank you. Appreciate it. Do I have any any more superlatives? Uh, everything else you were, uh, Everything else, you're pretty dead on, man. You know, I've been writing uh, in the Tampa Bay area, writing about sports, especially uh, Rays baseball for about ten years. Let's let's definitely jump on Rays baseball. Sure, let's do it. Let's let's definitely do it. Um, I, I assume you are definitely keeping your ear to ground and you know watching the season as it goes. Along. Oh yeah, they were down yeah. um, six to two in the fifth inning. I'm not in the room with my TV right now. But uh, when I walked into the room right before we started recording, they were still down, I think, 6-2 to in like the 6th. So tonight they're losing, coming off of a great sweep of the Red Sox. Uh, the Yankees took two out of three from them there in the trop, but they're still in first place. So the Rays are looking really good, surprisingly. Yeah, they're playing the same kind of baseball they did last, uh, last year. What's very shocking compared to last year is that they're not – dominating as much but like you know they they're definitely showing where they're fixing the errors on um you know where they came up short 
in some circumstances. Because if you compare it to last year, we only had 60 games. And, you know, we've already passed the 60-game marker for this season. We're, We're well than more than half over. So the fact that they can produce two times the amount that they did last season, especially, you know, on how far they went to. Sure. It's it's almost like they they have what they need to keep themselves in ball games. And even better to the notion on how they're shutting out one run differential ball games as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's been fun I, to watch. I think I think offensively from you know how they're doing now because the problem was at the beginning of the season we've mentioned this on the show um, I know you saw the statistic of the Rays possibly going to set the record for most strikeouts in their franchise history but they said that they could still win their division with that statistic and that's something that is unheard of right. when it comes to comes to any professional team it's it is strange they do swing and miss a lot there there was Mm -hmm. a few years where they they wanted to play for contact because remember when the royals won they um they were a contact first kind of team and the rays tried to emulate that for a season or two and they're like nope what's uh Let's just get back to uh, striking out a lot. So you've got a lot of guys on that team that do miss the ball a lot, and you know I'm sure it drives some of the uh, the old school fans nuts when they you know the station by station just put the ball in play. But the Rays are very much a 2020s level, uh, era team. A lot of strikeouts on both sides of the ball. And what's even crazier because you did mention a lot of the old school guys is that. The, the roughest part that the Rays have always had to deal with is you know being in the same division as the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees. But if you diagnose the entire division of the AL East, um, everybody's a heavy hitter. Right. The, the entire division loves to hit hard. It doesn't even matter if Baltimore is you know in it or not. They've got some guys who love to hit. And so the Rays have to come to the table with that. So And that's another thing that I want to reflect on, especially with the trade deadline just passing not too long ago. Today is Monday, August 2nd, and uh, the trade deadline was this past Friday, July 30th. Um, the Rays, they they could have gone for a bigger you know, deal. Unfortunately, the biggest thing they came away with was getting Nelson Cruz from the Minnesota Twins. Um, Mike, my good friend, do you think they could have used some more firepower? I mean, the obvious is that they could have used some more pitching, sure. especially after the Glasnow news. Well, the Glasnow news came out just like the day after the trade deadline. I, I mean, the Rays, you hope they would have known that Glasnow was going to be out and they just kind of let it out after the trade deadline. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were, uh, you know, the rumor now is that maybe they were, tr- they put Glasnow out on the market. For for uh, Chris Bryant, I mean, that was kind of eye opening. But if they were holding their cards tight on how bad Glassnow's injury was, and then they treated him as damaged goods, that looks horrible. I'm I'm glad you mentioned this though, because th- this broke earlier this afternoon, where I I sent it to all my circles. I part of my race circle, and I sent it to um, you know my Cub circles. Um, 
the the deal that they were trying to cook up included Craig Kimbrell, who is back from the dead in his career, and Chris Bryant also having a career year because he was a fringe player um, with his last year of his rookie contract. And nobody knew what he was going to be, especially post a rookie of the year and an MVP, MVP and winning a World Series with you know uh, the Cubs and breaking that 108 curse. The one thing that I probably can um, diagnose from it is the problems on both sides is that, yes, the Cubs were trying to go after pitching and retool because that was their whole you know, bag with what they were trying to sell, right. get impact players immediately. Um, and after this trade, the, the Craig Kimbrell result of him going to the White Sox made a lot more sense. Um, selling Bryant so that the Rays had the hitting depth for their team would have definitely worked, especially with how much platoon that they use at third base. Right. And Bryant gives, gives that throwback throwback on what Zobrist was by being a utility man everywhere. The, what made sense is that I thought it was going to happen because they traded Diego Castillo earlier. And it's just like, um, you just traded your closer. What are you doing? Right. Yeah. The Castillo trade definitely surprised me. I was like, um, but then people had said that he had lost a mile or two off his fastball. He was a lot less reliable this year than he was last year. Uh, last year he was lights out. This year, the Rays have this magic formula where closers are only good for about a year and a half. And then they get rid of them. They've been doing this for like 10 years now. They haven't had a steady closer. Fernando Rodney's done a a stint on there. Troy Percival going back. You know, the Rays have a a litany of closers who only pitch for about a year and a half on the team and they just turn them out. You know, other guys, um, what was the guy? uh, Colome. There was a fantastic Colome. Definitely. Colome had and two, three good years with the Rays as the closer, and then they're like, whoop, ship him out too. And they just churn relievers, and, and then they're never as good with the other teams. It's uh, The Rays have some kind of magic formula, I guess, uh, you know, for lack of a better The team. formula from what it was is that last year, the perfect one two punch combo was Nick Anderson. Yes. And Diego Castillo, and it didn't matter who was the setup man or who was the closer. They both made it work. They interchanged a lot until the World Series, and Anderson blew up. Anderson had yes. a garbage World Series. I mm-hmm. don't think he even had a good ALCS. Um, and then you know, obviously, Cash went to him after Snell in Game Six, and it was was it Game Five or Game Six. It was game, game six. six. Yeah, yeah, it was game six. No, it was game five because the Rays only won. It was game five. No, the Rays yeah. won two. That was the final game. The Rays won. Yeah, it was Rays game won six. You games. were absolutely All right. right. Yeah, it was yeah, game yeah. six, and you know, Cash got raked over the coals. But had he gone to Castillo and Castillo got you know two perfect innings after that, nobody would have been. Nobody would be uh, bashing Cash even to this day. So Anderson kind of ran out of gas, but Anderson comes off the disabled list hopefully soon. I know he's throwing recently, and the Rays are hoping to get him back. He could just easily step into that closer role once, you know, traded Castillo. And I know they got a good arm from Seattle, too. I don't know the guy's name, um, but he's supposedly a pretty good reliever. He's already pitched in the Boston series, I think. And uh, so they've got a good quality arm, whether or not he's a closer, closer mentality, is he a setup guy, is he a short man, whatever. 
but Anderson can hopefully step into that closer role when he's ready. Yeah. He's got to come back, and he's been on the 60, man, yep. since the start of the season. Yep. Um, he, he's had one or two setbacks, so it, it may not even be until close enough towards um, you know the middle of August or even September Yikes. as you know things get really, really close and really deadly. Yep. Um, but they're, they, they came out of you know the second half. Uh, I'm sorry. They came out of the gates after the All Star of the start of the second half, pretty well, yep. pretty decently. They just swept the Red Sox at home. Uh, they were they started the series a game and a half behind first. Now they're a game and a half, you know, ahead. Yep. Um, just as it's interesting with the NL West, the AL East pretty much probably has the hold on. You know the wild card in the division. The Red Sox are you know back from the dead for some weird reason, just like the San Francisco Giants. Um, I totally did not expect I'm, the Red Sox to be good this year. I just, me either, me either. And it's just like all they're missing is Chris Sale to come back for them just to dominate through the geez. remainder of you know the the remainder of the season. You have Toronto, who could be a pain in the side. Yep. For you know anybody in the uh, the division, and especially with their remaining po- uh, opponents as yep. well, New York. After they've made their deals, they are trying to say we're not dead yet, despite their shrinking uh, playoff percentage hopes. Yeah, they're what nine back, eight back, something like that. But they did they acquired Gallo, they acquired Rizzo, and you know it's funny because I was on a uh, another radio show this weekend, and I made the comment that Rizzo. Looks like he should have been in the Yankees. Should have been with the Yankees from day one. He's that big slugging first baseman, the Giambi types. Uh, who else have they had? That's a big slugging first base. They had Cecil Fielder for a little while. You're you're crushing my soul. Right uh, but he just, I, and, I, and I know he probably should have been a Cub for life. But now that he's with the Yankees, he just looks like the the aging Yankee first baseman that is a just a legendary position that they they always acquire these guys they always acquire the Cecil Fielders the Jason Giambis uh, uh, Mark Teixeira is another one that they had you know after he had already been an all-star somewhere else uh, and, and you go with way way back they had a guy uh, Johnny Mize in the 50s I think they acquired him from like the Cardinals or something and former and, you're going deep yeah, this is man. way way back we're going deep but I feel like he was like the first and the Yankees have always had these big lumbering Outside of the Don Manningly years, these big, big slugging. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Rizzo puts on about 50 pounds and is immobile, but sits there and just slugs home runs into the short right field per- porch. The dude dropped a lot of weight uh, during the COVID shutdown okay. while MLB was on ice, and um, he, he got really cut. Okay. Um, so he actually lost weight and gained more muscle. All right. And – the shocking factor is that, it, you know, you mentioned Joey Gowell as well. It was funny where internet memes were saying, like, the Yankees front office finally getting in touch with their New York roots, but, uh, roots by, you know, going out and getting Italian players. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, but if the one statistic that popped up with this series – that uh, Rezzo opened up in Miami. Of course, it's the Marlins of all uh, teams, but 
you know, that's also his hometown. And I thought if there was anywhere he was going to go is, um, you know, probably hanging up in Miami for one reason to be, uh, you know, close to where his family is. Right. But his first series with New York is, you know, he hits two dingers back to back days and then, you know, hits the go ahead RBIs and, you know, the last thing I want to say is like this is the piece that the Yankees were missing, uh, because again it hurts my soul. Right, right. But uh, <laughs> it's just like if he does fill in the shoes at first that you know the team actually needed, then the Yankees could probably transition their off season by you know selling some more pieces because what what the Cubs did with not just selling Rizzo but Javier Baez and Chris Bryant to go and, you know, collect other younger talent. Um, they might as well do the same thing if they're trying to get a bigger buy return because there's something not working for the Yankees before if they kept, you know, hurtling all these young guys who just have big bats. I mean, Aaron Judge is up for grabs next season. He may not even stay there. You know, that's that's a crazier, you know, thought to Absolutely, argue. that doesn't happen and under it's not, George Steinbrenner. George Steinbrenner locks Aaron Judge up for a twenty-five-year contract for about five hundred million dollars, <laughs> and Judge doesn't go anywhere. It's not George's team no, anymore. That's the sad part. It's really not. And and you know, I follow a couple of uh, Yankees Twitter accounts, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, some smart Twitter Yankee fans, and um, you know, not just the kind that's like, oh, 27 rigs. What do you got? Um, you know, I follow ones that actually kind of follow the team and are really insightful. And they say that Hanks or Hal Steinbrenner is just not as committed committed to winning as George was. If George didn't like the direction of the team, George fired everybody and got an entire new staff, a new coaching staff, new manager, and everything and said, I want the team to go this way. And yeah, we don't have as many hands-on owners. You know, that could, that's an older generation type of thing. Mm-hmm. But how is just kind of like we've got a new stadium, we've got a t- TV network, we're making billions of dollars hands over fist. What more do we need to do? And meanwhile, they haven't won a World Series since 2009. This is the longest drought in Yankees history since like the 20s that they have not won a World Series. Yeah. And and that's one thing that I also love encouraging and teasing a lot of Yankees fans is that um, you never hear the words title drought and Yankees in the same sentence. But if you haven't won in over a decade, right. um, it's more than, you know, obvious that yes, your franchise is in a title drought and, you know, it's not, it, it's really a unfathomable thing to, you know, understanding the reality that the Yankees are not this dominant as they used to be. And like this, this is why it's hard to break bread with other people who just can't talk baseball and they assume like, well, how are the Yankees doing? And if the Yankees are doing horrible, you know, of course you're not going to have viewership because a lot of people depend on, you know, the Yankees being good. Sadly, um, however, it's just to the other point where it's just, you know, a, a, the stereotypical Yankees fan who won't admit that their team is bad and they'll just keep on throwing the 27 ring argument uh, rather than being humble and say it's just like, 
uh, we, we don't have the tools to win it. They keep going after the same formula season after season. And it's just, that's the reason why they're going to come up short. They'll try to have a big push in the end and that's what gets them there, but they come up short in the playoffs and that's how it's been. You know, for them. it's interesting. There's now a fifth grader out there who has never seen the Yankees in a world series. That's funny. That is amazing to me. Like, that's funny. That, you know, the, uh, a, a kid is, uh, a, you know, a kid in Chicago is probably not even in kindergarten, you know, that the, uh, but I see the Cubs World Series. Well, I wouldn't go there. Because, well, since 2016, you know, what, that's five years old? Since a yeah, kindergartner, maybe yeah. first grader? No, that's, that's, that's true. And those kids were, you know, born because of it, because a lot of people were celebrating. This is true. So this is true. We, we don't need to go into so, detail. So, that. so focus. So let's go with a six-year-old. There's a six-year-old who watched the Cubs in the World Series. There's an yeah, 11-year-old who has never seen the Yankees in the World Series. In New York. Right. There are 11-year-olds in New York who did not. So I have this theory that in the 90s, after the strike, Bud Selig Mm -hmm. talked to George Steinbrenner and said, I don't care what you have to do. I want the Yankees in the World Series because I want those ratings back. I want baseball to be back. Uh, You know, he turned the blind eye to the steroids thing. But the Cardinals and the Cubs at the time were not World Series contenders. But they put on a great show with – a barrage of home runs with McGuire and Sosa. So Selig had his regular season ratings up and he had his postseason ratings by telling the Yankees, just spend, we don't care, triple the amount of spending, buy as much talent as you need to make the World Series. And they won three in a row then. It got baseball basically back on track. In regards to they, the ratings. They dynast they dynastied up until 2000. Right. And it was I feel like baseball got back on track following the 94 strike, partly because of the Yankees and the Yankees getting New York and the New York market and the New York media back. And, you know, for years after that, we were like, all right, most of us in America were like, all right, enough with the Yankees, you know, especially when it was Yankees and Red Sox. It was like enough already, but it really did get baseball back into the daily conversation. So, yes. That that is that is for sure, and that's a take if I ever heard one before, because that's that's absolutely wild. Conspiracy one hundred and one. I mean, (laughs) yeah, there it is, right there. Um, That's even crazier. So let's let's bring back the attention towards you know the locals. Um, We're in August. Sure. That that's two whole months for um, you know baseball to finish up. Do the Rays have? everything possible to make it back to the playoffs playoffs yes i so i'm convinced and this is going to be another conspiracy theory that Stu sternberg wants to go deep in the playoffs for the sole reason that the playoffs sell out and he's gone about a year and a half now with uh decreased attendance you know all of 2020 partway through 2021 the Rays mm-hmm. just opened up at 100%. They now the trap is 25,000 for their mm-hmm. uh, their max capacity. They just opened it up at July to max capacity. So you went about a year and a half with minimal income or with minimal attendance. That's also true. And so Stu Sternberg does not care about winning a World Series. He I'm convinced he doesn't. He they, the Rays might say they do and the players do, but for Stu Sternberg it's all about money. So yes. if he gets sellouts 
for three games in round one, five games, you know, three games in round two, the World Series brings in, you know, at a hundred bucks, two hundred dollars a ticket for the upper deck. You know, bottom seats are probably like a thousand each. The Rays are making a substantial amount of money in attendance, in ratings, in everything, the deeper they go into the World Series. Stern- kind of weird for a guy who doesn't give a shit about his team. Right. Sternberg wants that money, though. He is yeah, all about all he making wants. that profit. and the- He wants that return that he's never got. Right. So it's not about hoisting a trophy or anything like that. It is about going to Game 7 of the World Series or getting maybe Game 6, you know, depending on who has home field advantage, and getting the maximum amount of sellout to Tropicana Field that he could possibly get. And he's going to get that in the playoffs. That's true. That is absolutely true. It's to their benefit if they could actually clinch the division again instead of doing the playoff one-off right. as they've normally done. So that's anticipating that Boston tailspins as they are doing so right now. Um, and you know everybody else, the division having you know the division uh, that they're having, and the Rays just you know going up. Um, looking at the remainder of August, it's fairly easier for them because the harder part of their schedule was actually in the beginning. You have Seattle, Baltimore, who are easier games, but then you go to Fenway. Yep, next week. Uh, within a week. Uh, you continue the road trip to Minnesota, who's basically sold at everything, and I'm pretty sure Nelson Cruz wants to, you know, give them some souvenirs for uh, giving them the old goodbye. You come home against Baltimore. Your hardest series after that is playing the White Sox, but that's at home. And then you go uh, to Philadelphia and back to Baltimore before you take a four-game series at the end of the month to Boston as it transitions into September. Yep. I can see them having a similar month as they did this month with you know this month's schedule. Um, I see more wins sure. than losses. Um, if they remain over 500 for the month, I think their playoff chances are definitely a guaranteed plus you know a good stronghold of definitely repeating as division champs yeah sure sure i i agree with that and you know i'm looking into september as well they played detroit a lot and detroit's not all that mm-hmm. good um nope. so they got seven games against detroit in september a bunch of games against the blue jays the marlins and then houston and then the end with houston so they've, you know, the Detroit series, you know, like, like I said, that's they, they should win five out of seven right there. Uh, a lot of games against Boston. They're done with New York for the year. Uh, Toronto is one of those teams, though, that could that could be spoiler. And, and, they they wrap the season with New York. Yeah. Uh, oh, they did. Yeah. Oh, in October. Yeah. First. Uh, okay. Yeah. So I was looking at just September. Gotcha. Um, Toronto is one of those teams. I, I enjoy watching them. If they're not playing the Rays, like Biggio and Guerrero yeah. and uh, Bichette, yep. you know, I, I, they're a fun team to watch if they're not playing the Rays. Otherwise, I'm like, oh, geez, here comes Vlad Guerrero again. He I disagree me. because watching the two play each other is 
great baseball dramatics. It, it is. Like the two playing against each other makes great games. It, it is, but that's why I don't like watching Toronto play. Because, I mean, you know, I'd rather put, than put play it, Detroit or something. Put it this way. It's great competitive baseball without the rivalry bullshit that we get from New York and Boston. True. Okay. True. I wish Toronto because, had the pitching. Like, I, I really wish that they were top to, top tier team and that they had the pitching to match their They game. have it. It's just it's never healthy. That's their problem. Right. Is that Toronto never gets the healthy pieces, which is why them getting Jose Barrios yep. is a huge advantage for them. Yeah. And they're definitely trying to get that pushed, you know, to get it. It's not going to be this um, year, though. Uh, I don't know. Is Barrios a free agent? Is that why he was on the – No, they, they get him for uh, an additional year. Okay. Yeah, so they get him for the rest of this year, and they get him for one more year. Hopefully, you know he could, you know they they're, they're going to have the pitching for next year, and the Vlad Guerrero's going to be that much better. Uh, and they'll be they maybe maybe they surpass the Yankees and move to third next year. You know, we'll see what the Yankees end up doing. If the Yanks don't sell any of their big pieces, they're going to be in trouble for as long as they have Garrett Cole. Um, especially with this pitching scandal that's going on, which is, you know, even more insane. Yeah, I agree. Um, I agree. I, you know, I don't see them getting rid of Stanton. Um, Judge is a possibility, but Judge, Judge, they could refill their farm with somebody that, I mean, if, if Judge were to go to, to Wrigley or something, I mean, my goodness, he hit 50 home runs every year. I mean, it's 50 almost every year anyway, but he would be a I don't know how. I don't know how you're going to convince Jason Hayward to scoot over to center field. Hey, this is true. Or, um, but... Aaron Judge. And I can't see Aaron playing anywhere else. No. Like, I really can't. It's it's really hard to picturing him in any other uniform. Um, and it would be dumb if the Yankees didn't sign him, exactly as you true. said. True. Uh, um, Stanton, you know, as a guy that – he should have been better with the Yankees. I he must Yes, he should he's have. He's got only a few more years left on that contract, I think, doesn't he? He's I know the Marlins signed him for like a twelve year contract. It was something ridiculous and then traded him like the year after. Uh but I he's gotta be coming up sometime soon. And you know, that, that one two punch just is not what the Yankees had imagined. So they you know, they added Rizzo and then they added Gallo and you know. But could four guys hitting 40 home runs get you to the playoffs? I'm not too sure. And if you don't have it pitch- depends. It really depends because it somehow the Yankees live and die by the fact that this gets you to the playoffs, but it's just like slugging could only get you so far because we could always argue at the end of the day that pitching wins change. Oh, it does. It 100% does. And if you come up with a hot bullpen, you know, like the Rays have – where they're putting different arm angles and pitching to pitching to situations and you know sidearming left-handed knuckleballers and whatever and you know and, and you've got two of those guys go into slumps for the series, your chances are over. It would just definitely make a lot more sense if the Yankees just pretty much catered to their you know evil nature and made some deal with the devil to get some good pitchers for some I, reason. I, 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 I sense a segue. Very much so. <laughs> I sent a segue there. Ooh. <laughs> you know, that was a- I wish I had I wish I had the lightning bolt sound that, effect. That's- I'm still working on um uh my soundboard that, system. That's what we call for in the industry foreshadowing. 
<laughs> what, are, what are you teaching class now? <laughs> I wonder if I could actually write this off as like, yes, this is a teaching podcast. <laughs> Put it in the education category. Put a meta tag. There, education. There it is. It's actually there. We'll get some uh, some listens there. Um, so that's that's the one part that we do want to transition to is um, we're we're here because we want to actually talk about um, your book. The greatest part about you that you were excited about writing this book when you were explaining it to me before it was ever released is how your love of baseball and music comes together in curveball at the crossroads. Very, very much so. And I'm glad you brought it right back. Um, so curveball at the crossroads, if I could really quick give a summary, it really does play on the blues folklore idea of making a deal with the devil after a tragedy. So the story is about a young man named Jamark Relliford who gets hurt. He blows his arm out in his final game of high school. He's a pitcher in the sixth inning. Boom. His arm just shatters. That's chapter one. And then he makes a deal with the devil and the devil uh, says, Hey, I get, get you back into the game. Your arm will never hurt again. You'll be better than you were. If you just sell me your soul. So Jamark Relliford says, yeah, I don't have nothing to lose. Here's my soul. And, Mark Relliford just rides his, this magical arm all the way to the top of the majors, becomes an all-star, sets records, World Series, everything. And the devils kind of pops up throughout the book. I just say, hi, I'm still here. Remember me? And then the devil says, hey, deal's over. Uh, you need to pitch for your soul. So it has a very, you know, um, supernatural appeal to it. Uh, and I know the show supernatural plus the supernatural small S as an adjective. And it does very much lean on the blues. Uh, Jamark Relliford is from Rosedale, Mississippi, which is one of the home of the blues in the Mississippi Delta. He, he goes to the crossroads, the dirt crossroads, very much a blues thing. The devil is a very much a blues myth, blues myth folklore character there's other blues references and legends and names that kind of whisk their way through the book so very if you are blues interested in any way shape or form or even that whole devil method uh, mythology you'll definitely dig it there's there's two things i want to you know diagnose from those past two statements the first one with the music concept um as I kept on mentioning before, your love of music. Um, and you just mapped it out right there by saying that there's a lot of blues-oriented you know, culture and Easter eggs that you hide in this book, especially from where uh, Jamark Relliford lives. Why was blues chosen out of all the genres that you are passionate and a fan about? Well, I mean, it's a really... Good question. I think that these two folklores, or these two slices of Americana, both baseball and the blues, just kind of went together like peanut butter and chocolate. Yeah. Um, you know, like Reese's Pieces, you know, there, there was an old commercial. I don't even know when. But there's a guy walking by with a chocolate bar and a guy walking by with a, uh, a peanut butter jar. Oops, the chocolate bar lands in the peanut butter. <laughs> and they're like, oh, look, wait, this is Reese's peanut butter cups. And so it's a Reese's peanut butter com- commercial. And I felt like they had never really been intertwined well enough. 
And so I wrote this story to start. It started as a five page story and I sent it to a couple friends and they're like, that's it. Like boom, bing, bang, boom. It's over. And like, yeah, it's cool, but write more. And like, I want to know where he comes from. I want to know where, how far he got in his career. I want to know, I want to know what happens. So I just started outlining and I was like, let's put him in Rosedale. Let's make him from the Delta. Let's make him have these blues background references without actually spelling it out. Like he's not a blues man, but he's a, he's a baseball player who wants to get out of small town, Mississippi, which is probably a relatable thing for a kid in poor, uh, in the poor Bible belt of Mississippi in the Delta where there is not much money. And I'd make it a, I'd made a drive there years ago. I'd gone to Memphis and drove down to Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is the actual where the actual crossroads are. There's nothing there. It's like some, some blues tourist spots. BB King's birthplace is like an hour away. There's a blues museum. You know, so if it's not for blues tourists, Clarksdale, Mississippi would be just a bump on the road. You know, it'd just be just another dot on the map. And it's just that, that environment of kind of getting that kid that wants to get out, but now he's, he wants to get out so bad that he's willing to sell his soul to the devil is and leading on that folklore, that Robert Johnson folklore. Um, you know, it, it's something that the always tragedy kind of, of Dr. Faustus. Yes. 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 So, I mean, it goes back to Germany, uh, the German, uh, Faust and all that stuff, uh, legend. And then it was brought to the U.S. Then it became sort of the, the blues and, you know, uh, poorer rural people always tend to have more fear of the supernatural in stories in their, their backgrounds. And for the African-American culture in the Delta of Mississippi, it was very uneducated at the time. There were not a lot of schools, very agricultural, very farming they had that crossroads blues devil sort of you, – you either went to the church with sang gospel music or you went to the juke joint and sang the blues at night. And it was this dynamic and the blues men, blues men were always kind of like shamanistic devil worshipers – not devil worshipers in the sense like heavy metal devil worshipers, but they were more in tune to sin than the people who prayed and, and the church – you know, God-fearing folks, because the, the blues people popped bar to bar. They drank and they lived kind of, you know, they, they colluded with women and, you know, all that stuff. And they, they led that kind of uh, dark life of vice. So that this devil story, is, is that's where they came from. Well, they must be going to hell because that's the life they live. That's a very interesting perspective on how you make that connection from – so. The music and what they were involved with, especially absolutely, from what it's, you did. Your, and there's your a lot to that. I mean, there's a lot of. I had to had to do my homework. There's no doubt, you know. Uh, yeah. I, I'm a middle aged white. Uh, I don't like saying I'm middle aged at this point, but I'm a uh, you know I'm a white writer, <laughs> a white male writer, and so for me to write about the Mississippi Delta which I've only visited uh, for me to use blues and African-American legend folklore. I have to do my research. Listen, not to, I, not to break the wall on, you know, the whole part of you being a white man writing 
you know, about anything of uh, African-American culture. I want to give you the absolute kudos for doing everything possible to have as much inclusion as possible in this piece of fiction that you've written for the time that, you know, it's being introduced into the world in the 21st century of 2021. You make your efforts to reach to, you know, relate characters to the handicapped as, you know, and, and nobody does that, you know, these days. I mean, there's a lot of different groups who, you know, have reached out in social media, mind you, about not being included in forms of fiction. And you actually, you know, went out of your way to do that in your debut novel. And that's not me saying like, good for you for being PC. It's just like, you know, you're, you're being socially aware to include other inspiring elements on what has shaped music, this sport and all things considered with other folklore that you're, you know, inspired to make this story, which just makes this a great signature of American literature. I appreciate that. I know you've read it. Um, and, you know, thank you for the review that you wrote about it. I appreciate that. And, and it's weird because I started writing it in 2012 before really ethnic uh, diversity and you know, all those things were country divide problems that we've right, seen but they, in the they year. Really were a buzzword. Yeah. Yeah. You, you didn't say, well, we need more diversity in the workforce in 2012. Mm-hmm. You, you, but I was just like, you know what, if I'm going to write this, this has to be right. It has to really be authentic because I do not want to be, uh, I, you know, I, I don't even. want, I don't want to be called out on it. I don't want to be a, um, Oh, what am I looking for? I, I, uh, appropriation. Yeah, I, I definitely don't want to be uh, considered appropriated, appropriative. And one of the things that really, really bothers me about modern blues is the amount of Stevie Ray Vaughan clones out there, or Eric Clapton clones, mm-hmm. who are just middle-aged white dudes playing guitar who are raised on Eric Clapton, Stevie Ray Vaughan, and like that's it. And I'm like. You don't have the blues. You're going through the motions. You're playing the right notes, but the feeling just isn't there because you you're you don't live it. You haven't lived it. It's obvious I haven't lived it, even if I've struggled financially and been like, man, I can't find a job or whatever. I haven't lived the blues. Like I haven't lived generations of blues in my family and you know ethnic and racial and all that stuff. And no, I mean, I could have the blues because I can't find a job, but that pales in comparison to generations of, you know, inabilities to get mortgages and denials of services and basic services and all that stuff Mm -hmm. doesn't even compare. So when I see white guys up there just playing playing guitar and trying to be the next Stevie Ray Vaughan, and I'm like, cool, you're hitting the right notes. It sounds good. But it's lacking that authenticity. Right. It, it, it just sounds more like, you know, rock and roll. It does. It's it's blues rock. Yeah. And and I'm like, ah, you know, it just it pains me because I'm like, oh, this is good, but it's just it's missing that that feeling. Like you know, when you listen to a BB King or a buddy guy, he could just hit one note and you're feeling generations of just whoa. 
you know, you're like, wow, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. You listen to these, some of these guys, these early blues players, and all they had was a guitar and, you know, uh, like an acoustic guitar. They're singing about picking cotton in the fields, and you're just like, this is real stuff. There's a lot of tragedy and drama in these, in these lyrics. You know, like DMX. I mean, DMX had some songs where he was absolutely rapping about being mentally tortured, you know, like the yeah. devil's coming after me. Everything like that. DMX was a modern blues man who just rapped. Let me piggy, so you, let me piggyback on this a, a little bit. You know, to sure. transition not just the music ex, uh, aspect uh, with the blues, but the cultural shock of the absence of African American players that are inspired to stay committed to baseball. Because y- you and I both know that that is a larger problem at hand. Of you know those players not participating in the sport, especially when there's more of those players catering to football, basketball, and, you know, surprisingly, which I've seen recently is even hockey. So, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where we could beat the dead horse and the running gag joke that I have with this show that baseball is dead, uh, where nerds like us just laugh at that remark. It's just like, we, we, we both know that, when this is the culture that drives the you know cool factor and why people stay hooked or entertained for that matter and it's just you know again another kudos where you reach to a, another race of people that have not shown an inspiring part to play in it unless if you look back to even the, the negro leagues and what they did to set records. I mean, the cool part is, another spoiler, is how you make Jamark's legend start with smashing records in legend, or I'm sorry, in minor league ball, where you know he gets all his media attention and especially um, all his feats with that the devil provides him. And, you know, with this past year, we just past the uh, century anniversary about the Negro League. And now it's finally being absorbed into the MLB and putting all of their statistics in you know, the Hall of Fame. There's right. a handful of players that were smashing baseball records before you know, the dead ball era and a lot of the modern era. I mean, I argue to this day that Satchel Paige was 10 times better than Nolan Ryan. But you know, ten times is a lot. So Satchel, I mean, Satchel was definitely a a strikeout. You know, he, like a Pedro. Mm-hmm. I bet in his prime, Satchel Page was was as good as Pedro Martinez in ninety nine two thousand. Sure, you know, a, a death defying changeups, yeah. and curveballs, and fastballs. And he was probably better than Nolan Ryan. Uh, Nolan Ryan's a, a different class of pitcher. The four hundred innings a season, and you know, four hundred strikeouts. Uh, a Texas Hoss type of type of pitcher, but I would put Satchel Paige was probably as good as Pedro in ninety nine two thousand, and we never got to see that. You know, there's a lot of video footage of him with the Indians, but we don't don't really have much video footage of him uh, in the it wasn't the Homestead Grays uh, that was Josh Gibson team yep. uh, with the Monarchs yes with the Kansas City Monarchs yes but that was towards oh, we, the the end of his career 
when he right. was with the Monarchs. His bar, his barnstorming years when he he actually struck out. Um, uh, I want to say he struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in exhibitions. Which was you know, so yeah, Satchel Paige was probably the best pitcher to never, well, to not pitch into the majors until his late thirties, early forties, mm-hmm. and then even then he was just throwing control. You know, he was he was a strikeout artist, but still, uh, you know, uh, more of a Greg Maddox type at that point in his Very career. Much so. Very much so, and, and so if you combine Pedro with Greg Maddox, I mean that's 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 insane. You actually so, read my mind with that one. <laughs> so if we combine with, the two, but if you, it was interesting that you mentioned Jamark's minor league records. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jamark, um, he, he does challenge a minor league record. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to say he does or he doesn't. He t- he does. Uh, so I had to do some research on some minor league records. And this was part of the research into the book. And one of the records that I found was that in 1941, a guy by the name of Hooks, H-O-O-K-S, Hooks Iot, struck out 30 batters in a 15-inning game in Paragold, Arkansas, in the Class D League. Uh, he was 18 or 21 years old. He was in his early late teens, early 20s. And I guess he was just mowing down batters, but he went 15 innings. Struck out 30 batters. So Hooks Ayat sets this minor league record. Nobody's going to come close to it. It's what it baseball's untouchable records. Nobody's even going to come close. That is the professional record for most strikeouts in a professional major league, minor league, whatever game. So Hooks Ayat died in 1980 in St. Petersburg. And I was like, you know what? I did not know that. So, of course, that's coincidence because, you know, as a Tampa Bay writer – and Jamark Relaford in the book plays for the St. Pete Saints, which I knew had been a minor league team in the 50s, but hasn't been a team for years. I was like, you know what? I'm going to make him a St. Pete Saint. And so I looked, and in the 1950s, who pitches for the St. Pete Saints? But Hooks Ayotte. At the end of his career, he pitched three years here in St. Pete. He leaves, He gets out of baseball. He lives in St. Pete for the rest of his life, passes away in 1980. His family still lives in St. Pete. So I look up people with the name Iot, I-O-T-T, on Facebook. There's a bunch of people, and I just – I messaged one of them. I was like, hi, you don't know me. I'm an author. I just mentioned you know, possibly your father, your grandfather, in this book, and I would love to share it with you because he plays a role in one of the chapters of my book. And so I found – I ended up contacting his son. His son is probably in his 50s or whatever, you know. And this gentleman's name is Mark Ayotte. Mark emails me back. I add him uh, or mail, uh, message me back on Facebook. I add him as a friend. So, you know, it's, it doesn't get buried in, you know, uh, the, the neither world of non-friend messages and <laughs> on Facebook. And so we end up having this conversation back and forth. And I said, and he's like, I'd love to have one of your books. Can you please sign it for me? So I, I just mail it to him just here as a gift. You know, thank you for, you know, would love to know your thoughts on it. So I mail it to him. Next thing I know, I'm getting messages from other members of his family. Mark's sister, his nieces, other folks are like, we would love to have your book as well. That's very cool. they bought it for me. I ended up selling like five books to the IOT family, signing them all. And his niece, or Hook's IOT's niece, so perhaps Mark's sister, I'm not sure – messages me and says, yeah, we were friends with another author. Back in the day, my dad knew another author who was a big fisherman 
in Florida who was a world-famous writer who wrote us Christmas cards every year to the IOD family, your friend, Ernest Hemingway. I was like, oh, my God. I am now in a tight little circle with a minor league legends family who received Christmas cards from Ernest Hemingway. That's very neat. That's absolutely very cool. I was blown away. I was like, this, this book is magical. This book now has, it has to be big. It has to be successful because, and not just because I want to make money and I want to be rich and retire. Sure. But it just feels like it has this force behind it now where I can't let the ghost of Ernest Hemingway down. No, especially with the Florida man and you and I, we cannot like deny that. I, I can't do it. I can't. There's so even I even started editing parts of it, or I write or edit parts of it at an old blues. Um, there's a blues club in Tallahassee yeah. uh, called the the Bradfordville Blues Club, mm. and I remember having the book and having it just unedited. It was just a mess of ideas, and I went to the Bradfordville Blues Club. I went up to Tallahassee to a Florida State uh, sporting event. I brought the laptop with me to. In the middle of the day, the club is closed, but it's there's a big field outside. There's some picnic tables, and I just sat there. I just started writing. I just felt like the spirits are kind of there guiding this book to be great or because there's an authenticity to what's going on around me, the feeling of a blues club, and just the vibe and everything. And I'm just like, this is going to be something. And it's just a really weird feeling. And I hope that it's portrayed. Like, I hope when people read it, they're like, wow, you know, you really did layer this well. You told such a good story here. So far, I have like 17 reviews, and not one of them is under a 4.4 4 out of 5. So I'm pretty happy about that. I know. I enjoyed it. I, and I that, was, that. that was another question I wanted to ask. When I reread it, um, what what is the blues album that you recommend that i you know play while reading it oh wow i mean you can do robert johnson Mm -hmm. uh robert johnson's 29 songs uh you know uh uh, led zeppelin led zeppelin there's actually no i thought we uh, said no blues rock (laughs) zeppelin's different you know because there's some zeppelin songs uh what is it uh when he's like going down to rosedale Mm -hmm. uh got my baby by my side i think it is uh, it's, there's some there's some really good Delta Blues legends in Zeppelin. Uh, so and, and I, I had Zeppelin playing. Obviously, you're Chicago blues. I know you're a Chicago guy. Mm-hmm. So some BB King, some Buddy Guy, uh, some Howlin' Wolf, uh, Buddy Waters. Anything in that genre could really get you in the mood. Some Sun House. <coughs> Sorry, Sun House. Some of the old Delta blues, I think, would start you off. And then the, the, the Zeppelin, I, just anything with a good blues history to you, it. You got me a playlist for sure. Oh, uh, I'll put together a playlist. You know, maybe we'll do like a, the Wizard of Oz to Pink Floyd. That's funny. And, uh, you know, when we start with this song, it, it just kind of migrates. And maybe when you get to a page, you'll know where the reference is because that song would be playing. I wonder if we have to actually get in depth with this and get into the same mindset of some blues artists with uh, certain substances. So there's actually a Snoop Dogg reference in the book too. Yes. You have mentioned that before. So (laughs) 
Snoop makes a deal with the devil in one in uh, one of his songs on his on the doggy that style. Is, album. That is true. <laughs> so I did kind of use a line from that song in the book. I, you know what's funny is that I didn't realize that uh, until you mentioned that before on, on another interview, um, and I had to go back and actually view that because you know the one thing that there's two things that I noticed of you know two common signatures of yourself is one that you know you love hip hop and you know you throwing that in there was one part another you know i i won't spoil it too much cuz i want people to read your book and go and buy it but there's another uh pivotal you know cultural icon in music um you know that is at the climax of the story oh, yes. that reveals himself and, yes, you know, yes, the, yes. One, one of the signatures is, of course, you know, uh, the, the man's afro. And it's yes. just like, you know, that that is a good, you know, little uh, signature of my, my man here who always loves to uh, go to his events rocking his afro wig. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I, uh, so the afro, I mean, I could probably be on for another 45, two hours or whatever, talking about the Afro squad. The, the, the and, history yeah. of the Afros as you've broken <laughs> it down in the past. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I'll go to pro wrestling shows quite a bit to kind of sum it up. And I always want to be the guy in the crowd that gets the crowd excited, that boos the, boos the, the, the heels, cheers for the baby faces, and just gets the crowd involved. And I want the wrestlers to interact with me, yeah. not in a physical sense, but be like, shut up over there, you. And, you know, uh, you know, I put this big giant Afro wig on. So, of course, to, to throw that subtle nod to a certain Afro-clad performer uh, who has blues roots through and through and mm-hmm. who – weaves his way through the story and and I, I felt like it was a nice nod to that generation of music yes and to the afro and everything like that and it, I hope it fit really well I hope it was one of those things where people were like oh wow that 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 character did make an appearance and that you know it, it played a role in the story as well kind of made the the story move forward without just being a gratuitous cameo. Which, which, which actually makes it pretty cool, you know, as far as cameos go. The last question I have for you, and, you know, I, I hope you did your homework on this one. Um, you, you have mentioned that, you know, you, you want the book to sell, and I hope it does, you know, and I hope it gets popular enough where, you know, you could actually uh, possibly even sell the book rights for, you know, either a movie or a television series. Uh, who could be an actor that you could see playing Jamar Relaford? Oh my goodness. You know, I knew this was coming. And when you sent me the outline for this interview before or earlier this evening, I looked at that question and I was like, oh my goodness, Chadwick Boseman's dead. And I have no one else because Michael B. Jordan is too big to play Jamar Relaford. And I was um, going to say Anthony Mackie would definitely be perfect as well. But you know, I, now he I, now he's going to be you know proceeding with running the MCU for like the next decade and a half. So, so yeah, I, so I I know who to stay in the same. Here was mine actually. Um, okay, I hate to cut please you do short. because. Um, only because, again, to 
be loosely based off the whole, you know, Marvel scene or whatever. Um, the actor who I, it escapes me at this moment and I had it written down, but I don't know where it is. Um, the actor who's supposed to be playing Kang the Conqueror from the, you know, MCU introduction. Um, he also had a great breakout on that, um, HBO show, um, Lovecraft country. And, you know, he, he definitely looks like somebody who, uh, could play, um, Jamar Relaford as well, you know, from uh, the way so, his stature was. Yeah, that's the thing, you know. Definitely. I, if I were to sell the movie rights, and you know, somebody were to sell the movie rights, I've I've kind of always thought that it would need to be a director of color. Like there would be no doubt in my mind, I would not sell this to Steven Spielberg. You know, like yeah. I would not be selling this book, the movie rights to a white director. Like it just can't be because Jamark Relaford's African-American, the devil's African-American, Jamark Relaford's family. It takes place in rural Mississippi. And so to really feel like I would want to give the book back to that culture and say, it's your story. I just wrote it because I had the idea, but I want you to tell it in regards to, this is the same thing I told to an audiobook company that I've been talking to. Mm-hmm. Is I said, you know, it came from my mind, from my fingers to to words, but I need you and your culture to tell it. So um, I'm a Florida State grad, two, class of 2003 undergrad. So is Barry Jenkins, who mm. uh, won uh, his list of awards is. Super, super long. I can't remember uh, that the, the, at Moonlight or oh, I drawing a blank on what the thing that really put him on the map was. But mm-hmm. prominent, you know, obviously he's a huge prominent director now. He's done Netflix, Disney. He's done so much work. Um, but he's a Florida State school. Uh, just looking up his Wikipedia right now. He did If Beale Street Could Talk. Uh, Moonlight was what he won numerous acclaims. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Those are some good Academy ones. Award for Best Picture. He's won an Oscar mm-hmm. nomination for Best Director. Uh, he uh, Beale Street, If Beale Street Could Talk or nominations for an Academy Award and Golden Globes. He's a Florida State guy, class of 2003. And I actually Very know cool. people who were in the theater program then who knew him now we're going almost, you know, 18, 20 years, the odds that they've stayed in touch with him are probably pretty slim. But if it could ever go to somebody like Barry Jenkins and he could say, look, I have a protege who could really use a book that's, you know, like this would be great for my protege to turn into like a Netflix movie, you know, where it'd be under, he, where Barry Jenkins would be like the guiding mentor for a protege to turn this into a movie. I'd be like, that's awesome. Yes, let's do that. Um, so I'm, I'm not expecting, you know, um, him to direct it. I'm not directing uh, who's the the director of Black Panther, um, Ryan Coogler, to direct it. Like, no, it's not going to be a, a summer blockbuster. Like, it's not going to be a billion dollar movie. Come on, I'm, re- I'm realistic mm-hmm. here. But if a protege, if a young black director was like, I, w- I want to take this on because I want to do it right, sure. Very cool. I, I'm all for that. Very cool. Who do you feel would be great as this role and this role and this role? Sure, let's do it. And so I've thought the more other of reason that why than I have of, of individual actors and roles. Yeah, yeah. 
And I mean, the, the primary reason why, you know, I asked the, the question is, you know, I, I mentioned uh, briefly that, you know, the whole grasp attention of, of baseball to, you know, the people of color audience is a hard, you know, thing to pitch, right. you know, pun intended, you know what I mean? So it's just like, how do you get something as cultural, you know, identity as this story to, you know, a larger audience who may not even read or even like baseball. It's just like you make a story that makes it just as um, inspiring for anybody to get involved, especially when it's folk. Right, absolutely. You know? and, and it might appeal to, you know, it's weird with this book because I'm, I'm both trying to appeal to the African-American audience. I'm like, this is your story. I just wrote it. But I'm also like, hey, 50-year-old white dude or 60-year-old white dude who – loves Eric Clapton and, you know, Ed loves Johnny Bench, you know, like, Hey, this could be a book that I think you could really like too. So I'm kind of trying to sell it to that, that demographic as well. And oh, for sure. because they're the ones that, Oh yeah, I, I listened to Eric Clapton and Stevie Ray Vaughan and, you know, uh, I listened to BB King and, you know, they're the ones that are now paying $200 for a BB King ticket or your buddy guy ticket at, you know, Ruth Eckert hall, you know, and stuff like that. Or, you know, but buddy guy is not pe- playing little juke joints anymore. He's playing Ruth Eckert Hall and above, and you know Radio City Absolutely. Music Hall or whatever. Absolutely. And they're paying two hundred fifty dollars for a front row seat, and it's ridiculous because that's not the blues's environment to me. Um, right. But hey, BB, uh, buddy guy, make your money. Yeah, you know, I'm not you know chastising anybody for making their money, and um, so. I want to sell to that audience as well. I wanted to. I want Absolutely. those people who are obviously going to sell my, buy two hundred fifty dollars buddy guy ticket to buy my book as well. And if it makes them smile because they they're the big money spenders for season tickets for baseball and blues tickets, cool. Hey, please do buy my book. And as well, I am cognizant. I would love to get it into the reading lists of high schools, and you know if if. Uh, black studies and stuff like that and people to kind of you know be honest with me hey if I did a good job if I if this one part wasn't as strong or whatever be honest with me you know so far the ratings have been really good and people have said you did a really great job I don't care what color who you are this is really really well written so that's the important factor it is a really well written book thank you and you know that's that's the primary reason you know why it was a privilege to have you on the show to talk so about so quick it. question if i can um, ask you a quick question um you you bought yeah. two copies if i remember it was yes. right before christmas you bought two copies i know one was for you and mm-hmm. you read it i believe the other one was for your dad that's has correct. he read it yet i'm gonna be completely honest with you that my father has become more tech savvy than i have ah. when it comes to um you know, books. So he's actually more on the audible game ah. these days with, uh, with, you know, when it comes to books. Okay. Okay. Um, so coming soon. So coming soon, yes. curveball at the crossroads, we'll have a second edition out. And if, if I could pitch right here, uh, no pun intended. Yes. By all so means, the yes. first edition is sold out on Amazon. Uh, we, we did a limited run and of the first edition, and the first edition, I have about 90 left in my living room in boxes. 
So the best way to get the book right now is to contact me, uh, Twitter, Curve, uh, Crossroads Curve. Uh, find me at www.curveballatthecrossroads.com. My email address is curveball is crossroads curveball at gmail. You know, if you're interested, I can mail you a book. I do uh, Venmo, Cash App. Obviously, I take cash. All sorts of other fun ways to pay. Uh, somebody even mailed me a check, and I mailed them. I trusted that person, and we kind of corresponded. And uh, so, right now, of the 91st edition I have left. That's the only way to get it. We're putting together a new, fantastic new cover. Uh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's going to be drawn. It's say. drawn by. It's um, yep, you had a chance to look at it before the show. I will have a cover mm-hmm. reveal soon. And once we start the publishing process, it was drawn by MojoHand.com, a guy by the name of Grego Anderson. Uh, if you just Google Mojo Hand, he's been doing blues art for over twenty years. He was kind enough to commission. Uh, my new cover, it is amazing. I love it. And I'm so happy that this cover and the fact that it's by a known blues artist, not underselling the current first edition. I like the first edition. I like the second edition more. And we're going to have some uh, some ratings and reviews in the book. Uh, your review probably will be inside somewhere, probably first page or two. Uh, you know, I, I definitely want to do shout outs to the people that have read it in the first edition and in part in putting it in the first, in doing the second edition, it's going to be an audio book. Uh, I, have already contacted an audio company that deals with actors of various fame and stages of acclaim and it's a tiered thing. So we will probably stay low tier. I don't have a huge budget, but it's still a trained actor will do the audio version of my book, which will make it available on, on Kindle, on Apple, all the other platforms in which you could get a, a digital, um, both a digital book and an audio book. I want it everywhere. I want it in catalogs. So Barnes & Noble can order it. Walmart can order it. Used bookstores can order it everywhere. I want it available everywhere. That was the problem with the first edition is it wasn't as available as I wanted it to. So I said, all right, second edition, we're going to put it everywhere. We got a new sharp, sharp new cover, get some, some of that praise in there and just relaunch it probably in the next two to three months, hopefully before the World Series. I wasn't the first podcast to, you know, get you on to actually talk about it, but you know, I'm, I'm proud to be part of that collection that definitely. I'm trying to do and No offense. I know. Yeah. Uh, but I've been trying to do at least one a month since the book launched in oh, nice. December. So I've done ones for Toronto Blue Jays fans. I've done a few here, the Rays ones. I mean, you were one I, I needed to do. You know, we've been in touch since December yes. about doing this. Yes. And, you know, it just the, the, the stars had to align, right? And I appreciate yes. you having me on. It's just something that I, I just, I love talking about the book. So if somebody's like, hey, you want to do a podcast? Sure. You know, I'll, I'll, you know, I will pimp out my book to anybody at this point. Other than the book, where else can they find you on social to discuss, you know, baseball, music, and all things? So I am on uh, Twitter at TB Baseball MKT. That's probably my that's my Rays uh, Twitter account. I write a lot about the business of the Rays baseball. I'll write about wins and losses every once in a while, but a lot of the stadium issue, which we didn't talk about, that's another hour-long conversation. 
But a lot of that, I talk about the Rays on TB Baseball, Mark, uh, TB Baseball MKT. Tampa Bay Baseball Market.com is where that, that Twitter account kind of supports. That's a website that I ran for about five years. It was just me blogging every night, which could definitely wear, wear a person down. Uh, so now it's just occasionally every couple of months or so. Uh, let's see. Jordy Scrubbings, J-O-R-D-I-S-C-R-U-B-B-I-N-G-S is another Twitter account I have. That's much more pop culture. I talk music on there. It's maybe maybe dabble in a politic, political thing or two. Try not to. You're bringing all the tools out of the bag. Yeah, so wherever you can find me. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure you might hopefully post a link somewhere. One of the, one of theirs somewhere when you post this, uh, or just Google my name. I'm uh, there's That's I'm true. one of seven Michael Lortzes, I think in the world, maybe ten in the world. And when you Google my name, I'm usually about the one or two that pops up. I'm usually one of there's a, a guy that's a VP of tech in Atlanta, and an accountant with my name in Portland. Sometimes it's one of us three will come up at the top of your Google search. They should definitely invest in the book. They should. They should really buy the book. Like I feel like they should buy the book and just be like, hey, I wrote a novel. And I'm sure right. that people will be like, oh, my God, is that yours? I should bail them a book just out of that, like, be- hey, Michael, I wrote you a book. Here's a book with your name on it. That would be absolutely. Hysterical. To Michael, from Michael. That would be absolutely <laughs> fantastic. So Curveball at the Crossroads, written by Michael Lortz. Um, when I, I know when this episode posts, you know there'll be a lot of like retweeting and reposting, um, especially when the second edition drops with the new cover art as I'm well. Excited. And we'll definitely get it out there as much as possible when that happens, my friend. Thank you. Um, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning into another episode of the Estro TV uh, podcast. Uh, Michael, thank you again for joining us. Really quick, uh, if I could, the, the Palmetto yeah. bug is still dead. That is absolutely phenomenal <laughs> that we have no zombie insects on this entire recording. He did not regenerate. Which makes phenomenal. Um, TV, you are missed. You would have enjoyed uh, this conversation because – this guy could talk about all things, you know, considered. Uh, my my co-host is also a huge Noel fan, so I'm I'm sure you could have shared some definitely cool stories from the golden days. Oh yeah, we could have fun. Jazz. Um so once again, this is Maddie. You could find all of us on E at ETV underscore pod on Twitter. Estebro TV pod on Instagram and join us on Facebook where we will also post, you know, information of the website for Curveball at the Crossroads. Uh, my name has been Maddie. Thank you all, everyone, for joining. <laughs>